Could you give a, a single paragraph definition for neural modulation for folks listening in? Well, <clears throat> we can think of the information in, in the brain as flowing through uh, ion channels, which are fast pathways. And there are excitatory receptors and inhibitory receptors, or ne excitatory neurotransmitters and inhibitory neurotransmitters. And you know, one could think that that would be enough to build a brain with. But these basically two forms of ion channel neurotransmission, the excitatory and the inhibitory, which is what all basically all neural networks are designed around that. Uh, these two forms are surrounded by over 300 modulatory uh, receptor types, which alter the properties of the ion channels and, and the behavior of neurons in very subtle ways. So, for example, if you have a neuron that has the characteristic of firing in bursts, you know, it doesn't have to fire in bursts. That's just one way that it can fire. But if you have a neuron that's firing that way, that's its char character, a neuromodulator could alter that character so that it doesn't fire in bursts. It, it may fire in a more steady pattern rather than in a bursting pattern. So, you know, at, at the neuro neuronal level, that's what neuromodulators are doing. My research is at the level of the mind itself. So at, at that level, um, what neuromodulators are doing is they, uh, the neuromodulators are implemented through receptors. There's a large family of receptors called the G-protein coupled receptors, which includes the odor receptors. But in humans, there are about 300 different types of odor receptors and about 300 different types of neurotransmitter receptors in this family. Well, each one of these neurotransmitter receptors implements what I call a, a, a mental organ. And uh, it's defined as the population of cells bearing that specific kind of receptor. So serotonin 2A is a specific kind of receptor. So all cells that bear that receptor would be a mental organ. And different mental organs mediate non-overlapping domains of human experience. So for example, happiness and joy, um, and compassion and forgiveness, um, logic and reason, consciousness itself, uh, the sense of self. These are different domains of human experience which are mediated by different mental organs which are defined by different modulatory receptors. So, you know, I've talked about it at the level of the neuron changing the character of the behavior of the neuron, and, and now I'm talking about it at the level of the mind. So in terms of a, a Tierra-like model for this, is the idea to make it multidimensional, or would it still be relatively linear in terms of modeling this, this kind of uh, behavior? I don't understand the question. So I'm interested, as you're moving into this new form of simulation, is the is the actual physical locations, the contacts between the neurons in a kind of three-dimensional form going to be an important component? Or as you have taken Tierra, is it going to be a more abstract model that is less representative of the physical? Well, I probably can't answer that question because I'm not, 
I'm not myself involved in that work. As I said, Esther Lowe is doing a conceptualization of it. What, what, I, what I want ultimately for Esther to do is to publish uh, a review of neuromodulation for computer scientists working with you know, models of neural systems uh, to lay out the nature of modulation, the different forms of neuromodulation, and give some examples of how these different forms of neuromodulation could be implemented in, in conventional uh, uh, neural networks, for example. I'm not doing that. Um, I'm working, you know, I'm, I'm wet now. I'm, I'm not doing anything myself in the digital domain. It just happens that my two graduate students are both working in that area because I haven't established myself. I haven't published anything in the new area. Uh, era, uh, area. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I just had my first uh, paper in that area um, accepted uh, contingent on revision today. So uh, the work is just about uh, to begin coming out. And nobody knows I'm doing it, so of course I don't attract students in this area. Uh, my students are, are attracted by my, my previous work. So I, I can't really answer that question. It's, you know, it's, the idea came to me as, as another Tira-like thing that I could do, but I, I, I wasn't as excited about it as I was the original Tira, and I don't know that I'll ever get around to actually doing it, but at, at this point I'm too involved in the wet work and getting it out to contemplate actually getting involved in that the digital transfer. You know, once that work is done and it's out, you know, then I'll be in the position to think about: Do I really want to go ahead and and do uh, the digital transfer in in this uh, domain? I don't know yet. Yes, it's an interesting time for artificial life currently because I'm not sure if you followed Larry Yeager's recent development with Polyworld. But he's opened up various components. So, for example, I put my Noble Ape cognitive simulation in Polyworld and taken out his uh, sea creatures uh, cognitive simulation and put it in Noble Ape. And there are a number of these kind of projects that are going on currently with the kind of artificial intelligence and the simulated environment version of artificial life. And it interests me that this is really a period where uh, a number of the kind of artificial life simulators, Crititing is a, another one, which is a new one based on uh, Polyworld in some regard, but with a heavy kind of neural network component at its core, seem to be exchanging neural networks and exchanging broader ideas to kind of competitively hybridize what's come through artificial life or this particular area of artificial life. So you're talking about this at a, at a wonderful time for the artificial life community because these are the kind of simulations in terms of a, a drag and drop view of consciousness where you can put them into, into various pre-existing simulations. Um, so, I mean, certainly uh, motivate your, your master's student to investigate these areas as well because super intelligent sea creatures, for example, uh, would be wonderful to see with the kind of uh, uh, neural network descriptions that you're offering. But I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Avida and how Avida fits in with Tierra and whether, uh, you know, whether you see uh, folks maturing of Avida uh, in directions that you're talking about in terms of how you would have liked to have taken Tierra in the future and just a kind of broader narrative about the linking of the two programs. Well, I, I think it's great stuff uh, what they're doing. Um, although I don't work in this area, I still get uh, papers to review. I, I review quite a lot of papers in artificial life, uh, both for 
conferences and um, and journals. And so I see some of what's going on uh, for that reason. And uh, I, I know that the the people working on on Avita are really good people uh, trying to solve the hard problems. And you know, more power to them. I uh, I don't think anybody has really had the success. You know, the the ultimate goal of creating a system that spontaneously shows large increases in complexity. I think that's what a lot of people are, are working towards. I mean, not, not everybody, because some people are more interested in, say, computational intelligence than this kind of evolutionary complexity. But um, I, I guess the Avita group is in, in, has similar goals to what, uh, what I was working towards and what uh, my student, Gia Shen, was working towards. So I'm only marginally uh, up on what they're doing, but I you know, definitely feel uh, that they're continuing to try to do the, the kinds of things that I was trying to do, and so I'm happy. In fact, it's one of the reasons I was able to walk away from Tierra was because you know, walking away from it didn't kill it. Uh, other people are, are working on derivatives of it, and so it, it continues to live even without me being involved in it. And in terms of, I mean, we've talked up until now about 20 years of Tierra and kind of your future work, but in terms of the artificial life community, obviously you've, you've been a part of the artificial life community for, for 20 years or so. Would you like to give a description of the kind of ebbs and flows that you've seen as, in the community as a whole and what you think will, will come into the community in the future? Well... I guess um, I think many of us, uh, I, I recall having to explain this to Jia Xiao's thesis committee, which were which are zoologists who don't work in the field of artificial life um, for the most part, that it's kind of a rite of passage in the field to attempt to create a system that shows open-ended evolution with uh, significant increases in complexity, seemingly able to continue as organic life has done. So it's a rite of passage to attempt to do this and to fail. And you know, my, my goal was to convince her committee that it's okay for her to fail because that's what we all do in the field. <laughs> and, and I guess that's you know, how I see it, is, is that you know, we at least for the part of the field that has this particular goal of, of open-ended evolution, I'm not aware of anybody having achieved it. You know, we, we do things that, you know, by comparing with and without this thing, we can show that evolution is better with this thing than without it. And, you know, it's a little bit like genetic algorithms and evolu evolutionary computation field, you know, trying all different things to in improve the evolutionary process. But, you know, outright open-ended evolution I don't think anybody has has got it or or anywhere near it. You know, Tierra looked promising for a transient period, and and I guess many systems have that quality. But the the big goal uh, seems to remain elusive. And I suppose you know that may be one of the reasons why I moved on. Um, you know, I didn't want to spend the rest of my career beating my head against the wall. Uh, when I had another compelling idea that I wanted to work on. 
But I mean, certainly emerging consciousness from simulated, you know, simulated agents, I would consider part of the contemporary artificial life community, and this seems to be what you're describing as well. I mean, do you see the artificial life community in terms of definition spreading uh, a great deal from, you know, the late 80s when you first entered the artificial life community? Or do you see it really, as Mark Badeau does, as a kind of continuation of, of Chris Langton's original definition of life as it could be? Well, I'm not going to be in in quite the position that Badeau is to to comment on the state of the field because apart from the reviewing that I do, I'm not watching it. Uh, I was, um, I guess, in April... Uh, I, I went to an artificial life uh, session. Um, Christopher Nahanov invited me to speak on uh, evolvability, and I said, well, I would just make a fool of myself if I got up there and spoke on it because I haven't thought about it in years. I, I don't keep up with the literature, and he kindly allowed me to just speak on my latest research. It was very well received, and I, I did have um, a message for the community, which was... Uh, sort of the good news and the bad news of what I'd learned about uh, the mind. This this was in a IEEE meeting on computational intelligence, and it was a session on artificial life within that larger meeting. So my message was for the you know for that part of artificial life that's interested in in intelligence and its emergence. Um, what I've learned studying the human mind is that it has a major division between two domains. There's what I call the cognitive domain, which is logic and reason. And then there's the affective domain, which is kind of emotions and feelings. And the cognitive domain is the is the newer domain, the more recently evolved domain. It's maybe uh, uniquely human, but it's built on top of an ancient and actually more complex affective domain, which is the core of our being. And we're really nothing without it. And I, so uh, the bad news part of it is that I, I think that most of the computational work on intelligence is limited to attempting to emulate the cognitive domain. And I think that's never going to get us to where we would like to be because it leaves out the effective domain, which is really the core of our being. Um, the good news part of it is that what my work is showing is that the, the whole thing, including the effective domain, is not a, an amorphous mishmash. It's, it's broken down into hundreds of components, specific components with specific underlying neural structures. So I can identify the component that's responsible for happiness and joy, and I can identify the component that's responsible for compassion, and I can identify the component that's responsible for consciousness itself, which actually was counterintuitive to me because I'd always assumed that uh, consciousness itself was just kind of emerged from the collective whole, but I've found an organ of consciousness, and you know that's 
kind of a new idea. But um, my point is that the good news is that there are specific neural structures for these specific functions, including the effective domain, which is what I think the computational approaches have left out uh, to this point. So I don't think they're intractable as one might think if, if, if one didn't know about the structure of the mind, which is what my research is, is revealing. So um, for those interested in uh, intelligence in the artificial domain, you know, I, I would recommend learning about the effective domain because it's it's really you know it's the larger part of the mind and it's the core of the mind on which the cognitive layer is is uh, built and uh, Antonio Damasio argues in Descartes' error that we can't even reason without it that it's it plays a critical role in all reasoning and decision making processes and it's probably he's probably right about that so you know I, I don't think artificial implementations of intelligence are going to get very far until they get real about the larger structure of the mind it's not just cognitive you know i mean you know we have all these departments of cognitive science or cognitive computational whatever you know cognition is in the name of the department and and you know they're trying to create intelligence and mind in, in the machine and they're leaving out the bulk of, of the mind and uh, and i think that's a mistake certainly certainly because our chat room seems to be largely filled with graduate students this evening as they uh, you know start to think about a possible career developing artificial life i was looking through your list of funders on your website um as part of your curriculum uh, vitae and this amazing uh, list of, of potential funders for future artificial life research from there. For someone who would be looking for folks like Brick Kleist and the Grateful Dead, as well as Sun Microsystems and Digital Equipment Corporation, IBM, I mean, in terms of your, your funders and the way that you've talked about artificial life in ways that would appeal to them, can you give some kind of overview about how to create artificial life which is immediately fundable? Well, I was lucky. Uh, because uh, I got a lot of publicity, and in the 90s, I gave over 200 invited lectures as a result, and I went to all the major computer companies, and uh, a lot of them gave me money. Uh, that said, um, for people who are trying to survive in academics, it's a miracle I survived on as little funding as I got. Um, you know, most of the funding that I got didn't provide overhead, which is what the institution really cares about. Um, you know, I had, you know, there's one or two overhead-bearing grants in, in my entire career. And, you know, that's not good. Um, I, I survived in, in part because of the publicity surrounding my work, and that's not going to cut it for most people trying to make it in academics. So I I don't have a good funding record, frankly. And it's just a miracle that I made it uh, to the level of full professor with my funding record. I would 
you know, I would have trouble making it. You know, anybody with my funding record is would likely to be denied tenure, actually. And in kind of broader terms, I mean, you, you say that you're you no longer feel really as a member of the artificial life community, although you you still do peer review related reading. But for recent graduates or folks listening in this evening who are thinking about taking artificial life in their own particular directions, do you have any advice to them? Any what advice you say? Yes. Well, um, the advice that I would offer was what I tried to express in my paper, uh, something about Zen and the art of creating life, which is when you transfer something from the organic to the digital medium, don't be a slave to the organic form. Um, be true to the process. So be true to the process of ev evolution or be true to the process of, you know, whatever's going on in, in neural systems. But if, you, if you're a slave to vividly representing the digital system in the organic system, to my mind, that's not really artificial life. That's a model. And I don't think that's what artificial life is supposed to be about. So what I tried to do in the original Tierra and what I would do if I was to move uh, neuromodulation over would be to really think about the, the medium into which I'm inoculating this process, be it evolution, be it neuromodulation, and think about the essence of the process, the, the, the abstraction of the process, the nature of the medium, and how best to to put the process into the medium in a way that's natural to the medium. Don't be too tied to the way that process manifests in the organic medium because the organic medium and the digital medium are radically different mediums. And the same process is gonna look very different in the different mediums. And, and if you elaborately represent the organic thing in the digital medium than what you've got as a model. And and again, I don't consider that to be artificial life and I don't think it's very interesting, really. Well, Tom, I'd like to thank you for your time for appearing on, on Biota Live and please do not be a stranger. Uh, we've had uh, a number of guests that have appeared in the past with the view that they would have an interview and a chat and the kind of thing that you've done this evening. And they do occasionally reappear for general discussions. Have you been following Bruce Stamer's work with the Evo Grid at all? Uh, yeah, he, he uh, visited me recently and uh, we talked about it, so I'm kind of up on what he's doing. Terrific. So maybe we could invite you back for a future Evo Grid related discussion to uh, to reinforce what you just said with regards to artificial life and, and real life. Okay. Terrific. Well, our next show will be October 30th at 8 p.m. Pacific, where we will have Mark Badeau on. Mark will be talking about artificial life in industry and academia and the plans for the International Society of Artificial Life with regards to these two components, and maybe even something to do with a hobbyist as well. So the next show, October 30th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Mark Badeau. Thanks once again to Tom for calling in this evening, and thanks for folks for listening in.